We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Ron Chopper Harris, Tony Cascarino, Mark Steen, Frank Sinclair, Tori Andre Flo, Dennis Wise, Tim Lovejoy, John Terry's teammates' wives. Can you hear me? Your guys took one hell of a beating. <laughs> Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post match podcast. Welcome back to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. And yes, I am still absolutely buzzing over the weekend's football. Wonderful stuff. Arsenal 3, Chelsea nil. It's been a long time coming and it was well worth the wait. Well, I would have preferred it a bit sooner, but I'm going to take it now. As Theo said, the past is the past. The playing fields have very much been levelled up recently and um, we're starting to see it on the pitch. Fabulous stuff. I don't even know where to start. Loads of players in the red and white were in top form. Theo Walcott, Alexi Wobi, Alexis Sanchez, Mesa Ozil, Laurent Koscielny and partner Mustafi at the back. Fantastic. The full-back, everybody across the whole pitch. The only bad side to the game was injury to Francis Cochran, which we'll get into in the podcast. So I won't get into that now myself. But I just hope we can keep this up now. As I wrote in my match review, it's been the kind of performance that we've been waiting to see since pre-season. I think there's been a few adjustments been made, and it's taken a while to get to this stage, but we're nearly there. I think the way we're playing now, we can beat pretty much anybody in this league on our day. have to hope that our days more often than not. Time will tell. Time will tell. We've got a big squad, and it's just going to be a matter of keeping them sharp, keeping them confident, not having many injuries, which is always the... Uh, 
Always the big doubt in our minds. But we'll see how it goes. Anyway, I'll hand you over now. So enjoy the podcast and back after Basel. Basel. Basel? Basel. In the Champions League. Starting lineup everybody hoped for gets result everybody predicted. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Arsenal celebrated Arsene Wenger's 20 years in charge in style with a thumping 3-0 victory over Chelsea, leaving the only concerns, really, an injury to Francis Coughlin, which we'll get to, and the fact that it wasn't 5, 6, or 7, which it probably could have been. Um, everybody wanted that starting lineup, especially Coughlin in the middle, and everyone expected a victory here. So think, no, I kid, I kid. I didn't want Francis Coughlin, and I thought we'd get beat badly. So you're welcome, because clearly I did it. Um, But yeah, it was a masterful performance. I would say you'd be hard-pressed to find a player who didn't contribute in style, and it will be an absolute pleasure to discuss it with Paul. You can find him on Twitter at PausingInMyPants. Hello, Paul. And... Drum roll. Who could it be? Who could it be? It's Tim. He's back. It's Tim from Stilberto on Twitter from reading him everywhere and hearing him everywhere. He's back. Hello, Tim. Hello there. While you were not podcasting with us, uh, having told us that you were chronically ill and couldn't get out of bed, I saw a picture of you with Ian Wright and your spouse uh, at a bar or a pub or a local. Yeah. Um, so, liar, liar, pants on fire. I'm kidding. You didn't say that. You just had to do stuff. And if it's going to be take a picture with Ian Wright, I'd say that's fine. I'd say so too. Okay, good. Glad we got that out of the way. Let's get started. The manager stayed with the unchanged side. And I have to admit, I kind of dismissed the Hull result as Hull being shit, because they are, and we saw what happened to them at the weekend. And so I dismissed any progress we made as being just a byproduct of a team that sat off and gave us space, and we we tortured them for it. Um, But really, now you look, it's three heavy wins in a row. Tim, were you at all disappointed with the lineup when you saw it? Not really, because I completely and utterly expected it from the second that it was uh, announced at Hull. I thought, well, that's what he's going to go with for Chelsea, um, very obviously. So that kind of assuaged any potential disappointment I might have had. But I didn't really have any, to be honest, because um, it's probably what I would have done um, in that scenario. I think, you know, we've tried and tried and tried Olivier Giroud against Chelsea, and it it doesn't get anywhere. They're very comfortable defending against a striker like him. Um, and I looked at our midfield and Granite Jacker. And look, I, I'm please don't think I'm being down on the guy because he's just started his career. He's in the team and fits and starts. But I think defensively, there's still possibly a bit of a question mark over him at the moment. He gets dribbled past quite easily. Um, I really wanted that front three against Chelsea. That was exactly what I wanted because we banged up and up against their centre halves fruitlessly enough now, and it was very clear that. If you're going to hurt Chelsea, it's going to be with mobility. Uh, and I thought that those three were exactly what I wanted. Theo has a very good record against Chelsea as well. Um, so I, I'd nearly always have him um, starting against them. And um, because that's exactly what they struggled to cope with. And in terms of the midfield, what I was hoping was what we got was that Arsenal would do what they did against Liverpool a couple of seasons ago, what they did against Manchester United last season, that they would pressure. Uh, because, you know, the likes of Matic, Cahill, even David Luiz, Ivanovic, like none of it screams mobility to you. Um, and particularly when they pick Fabregas, which I thought they might, I thought, you know, we, we could have, you know, we could overrun them in midfield, really. Then it's only down to Kante, who I would um, 
not fear, that's not the right word, but the only one I, I would think, well, he, he might have a say in this, but as it turns out, he was terrible. And uh, I think at the moment, if you're looking to press an opponent high up the pitch at home, uh, you have to pick Coquelin because he's the best fit for that. Um, and so I, I, was, I was perfectly happy with the starting lineup um, and everybody in it. I was hoping that we would get into them nice and early, press them high up, dictate the pace of the game. You know, we saw last week, I think, that Gary Cahill, albeit he was fouled, but mm. you saw that Swansea kind of got up his nose a bit and, and got, got some change out of just putting him under pressure. And um, it, it seemed to me like the most obvious game plan just because we tried everything else and it hasn't worked yet. This kind of starting quickly and getting stuck into them has, has worked against teams like Chelsea um, in the past. And this is a blueprint I don't think we can really repeat against most of the teams we play at home. It's only the ones who have harbour some ambition of doing some attacking that we can do this to. And so... I, I didn't see any reason to deviate from that. And for me, that means you've got to play Coquelin and Cazorla together um, at the moment. If you want to do that, that may change in the coming weeks and months. Um, but at the moment, that was the most logical too. And, I, you know, I think obviously it was completely justified, not just because we won, because, you know, sometimes we all get into results-orientated thinking and we don't look at the performance enough. But, I mean, this performance was consummate from beginning to end in many different ways. And 3-0, it not only did it not flatter us, but it possibly slightly flattered Chelsea um, in the end. It was just an utterly dominant performance. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a lot of that had to do with the front three and certainly the midfield too. I know Coquelin went off early, but he went off, you know, during our best period of the game. And we did, possibly because of the scoreline as well, we were 2-0 up. But it did take a little bit of our impetus because, you know, you've got Coquelin and Jacker together and it's not the most dynamic. Um, but if you're 2-0 up, they're brilliant because they'll just keep the ball for you, mm. which is what they did. So actually that ended up working out all right. If Coquelin had gone off at 1-0 or 0-0, um, I'm not sure how the game might have panned out. But um, team selection was exactly what I wanted and it was, it was totally justified. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have an issue with the idea that we need Francis Coughlin if we're going to press high up the pitch, only because I think what worked on the day, Tim, was a coordinated, team-oriented press that pinned yep. them in in groups. And in fact, it reminded me a little of the first 20 minutes against Liverpool on opening day. Um, what I think is worrying is when we do try to use one sort of roving pressing guy and everybody else is kind of passive— um, I think it's interesting, if you look at some stats, ball recoveries, Cazorla and Shaka tied for the most ball recoveries at seven. Mm. Tackles, Walcott and Shaka tied with Mustafi for the most tackles in the side. Um, you know, I think what that says to me, and obviously uh, Coughlin only played 30 minutes, but if you look at ball recoveries, was still you know up there near the top of the team as well. I think it says that, you know, the front men are being tasked with the responsibility, obviously, of winning the ball back, of making the tackles, of heading off the attacks before they start. And then on the few times we were vulnerable, it was when they did get it out of their own half, which they didn't often do. You know, they played a lot of passes, I think more than we did, but very few in the final third, whereas we played a ton of final third passes. Um, you look at, I think, Ozil and, and Cazorla alone, if I go to the passing stats for a minute, you know, I think... 
they played, well, let's see, let's just get it right instead of just guessing, shall we? But, you know, again, they, they played tons of passes in the final third, and I think that's, that's really a, a big indicator of the kind of dominance that we had was just that the, the ball was pinging around their area, and I'll, I'll get that stat for you in a moment. I don't have it right in front of me. Paul, um, at least for the first 30 minutes that Cochran was on, the press seemed coordinated. For you, what specifically made the difference in in that first blitzkrieg of a, of a half hour or so? Um, so uh, I think we're going to spend, you know, some time talking about Chelsea's defense, but what I think put the pr- so much pressure on their defense, apart from there was some inherent fragility in there. By the way, real quick, but, let me just interrupt just for a second because I have it now. Mesodozo played 34 of 39 attacking third passes. Santi Cazorla played 30 of 36 attacking third passes. So that right there is 75 passes attempted, 64 completed in the attacking third. Um, no Chelsea player completed more than 25, which was Matic of all people, and 19 for Hazard. So that was just my point that even though they played more passes, we were really pinging it around there their uh, final third. Awobi, by the way, just quick mention of that, 17 of 17 passes in the attacking third. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, uh, like the last few games we played badly, I've made the point that if we didn't have a decent front three, if we didn't have an attacking outlet, that was why we were under so much pressure in midfield and at the back. And I think Chelsea suffered from that massively. You could see, I mean, we all saw from the get-go that uh, Koscielny and Mustafi had Diego Costa's number. And the beauty of it was, I mean, they bullied him at every turn. They kicked him. They need him up the arse. Uh, we saw the moment Koscielny rolled him when he caught him off balance. I mean, they were there to make a statement I seriously had two or three moments when I looked at Diego Costa where I started to feel sorry for him. Did did anybody else get that? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, really, really bad. Want him to invite was, him into my home for dinner. Yeah. I swear to God, I I like I had that first that first initial impulse of oh the, and then I'm like fuck him. But so there was that aspect of it, and then to the Cockland general pressing, you know. Fabregas has been rubbished in that game, but again, that's kind of results bias. That's kind of 2020 hindsight. Clearly, when this team went out on the pitch, the two boys at the back were going to bully Costa. All I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't just the physical bullying they gave him; it was fucking mental. They, you can see from their from their whole posture, the way they carry themselves. They had the measure of him from the first minute of that game. We had the measure of Fabregas from the first minute. There was a clear instruction that Fabregas does not drop deep and get time on the ball. He never had a second. Coquelin or whoever was near him was all over him. Mm-hmm. And that just pushed all this pressure onto their back four, their their midfield. Uh, you know, you talk about passing and, and possession and where it was played. There was a reason that when they had possession... It was in their back two-thirds. They had nothing going forward. So for me, um, as I defended Arsenal two, three, four games ago about you can only criticize them so hard when they don't have a decent front three option. Um, You know, these guys had a decent front three option at Chelsea. We just took it away from them between what we did to Costa and what we did to Fabregas. 
and I think it just piled the pressure where the weakness was. Um, mm-hmm. I agree with and, that. Yeah, I think that was huge. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an, it's very obvious now, but how many times have we seen Fabregas and certainly doing it to us where he drops, takes a touch, bangs it over the top? I mean, I'm still amazed how fast Costa is. I mean, he runs like a fucking duck, <laughs> but he's incredibly fast. Uh, he's a mobile. lot quicker than, than you think for a guy with that kind of physique. Yeah, and because he has that physique, uh, you know, speed and that level of aggression and physique, you know, he'll bowl, he he did it to Koscielny at one stage where Koscielny had the measure of him, but it kind of didn't matter. But uh, Koscielny had, had uh, shepherded him off to the the right of the box, so it wasn't too painful. We gave away a free kick. But, you know, he he's just a fucking tough cuffs, customer. So mm-hmm. that to me... For all the talk about how shit, Chelsea, it was funny. So my my Twitter was stuck. You know the way when you get back onto your phone and you haven't you, you've been looking through your computer at Twitter, and then you get back on your phone and it's like a day or two behind in terms of the, the tweets that yep. are in your timeline. Yep. It was from an hour before the match, and I got to read through. I'm like, this is interesting. Got to read all of you bastards' tweets before the game. <laughs> and I compared that to what some people, you know, smart. I'm not talking about the dummies who get all nervous ninnies. Right. I'm talking about the smart people. My, do you change your opinion after a game about how it was a, you know, a given, a done deal, how it was always obvious, how, you know, it's like. Yeah. Uh, I admit was- to not seeing this coming and and to not understanding where it came from and i think that part of that is because i dismissed the forest and hull uh results and performances as being down to the competition and also obviously forest was a much changed side and also because you know the the two real quality opponents we've faced or three i guess if you want to put leicester in there but really liverpool and psg you know liverpool ultimately once they got to grips with our press kind of humiliated us a little bit and then psg played us off the park result aside so yeah i i didn't see it coming and I think the biggest thing is just that our our press was so coordinated and so effective. They were so unable to play the ball out from the back. I mean, it it was incredible how many unforced, well, not unforced, but forced errors they made and and how many times we were able to turn that into transitions. Um, What I noticed, and I don't know, Tim, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on this. To me, it looked like, you know, a 4 2 3 1 out of possession or almost a 4 4 1 1, you know, with, with, uh, the wide players dropping in sort of to midfield to help defend and then uh, Ozil standing just behind Alexis. But in possession, it was like a 4-2-4 four, a four, four with, mm. with Shaka and Cazorla, one, you know, one of the other kind of sitting, sitting in midfield, one deeper than the other. And then... Ozil, Awobi, Theo, and Alexis at some level just kind of all across the front, you know, the, the edge of the box. Um, mm. And they all seemed to have freedom to go where they wanted and where they felt they could hurt. And it, to me, it looked like we were always trying to overload one side. So if, um, if you know, uh, uh, Walcott had the ball on one side of the pitcher, actually, the, the one I'm thinking of, I think there was a moment where, where uh, Nacho had the ball on the left and Iwobi was standing next to him, and Theo was standing in the middle, and Alexis was standing next to Theo, and Ozil had slid over to that side, and we were really creating overloads on one side of the pitch. But what makes this all work is the mobility of that line. And mm. 
I, I know you tweeted about this, and, and one of the questions has become, you know, sort of Giroud's role in the squad. On this day, we saw a breathtaking attacking display. You know, one of the things we've talked about is, results aside, Arsenal haven't been that beautiful to watch. And on the day, we were beautiful, and a big part of it is just the mobility that's back in the side. Um, for you, is this the culmination of how the manager has been wanting to play for a few seasons now? Absolutely, yeah. And you, you've seen it in his team selections. You've seen it in, um, in, you know, in some performances. And we kind of sat here after the Manchester United game last year and kind of said, right, here we go. It looks like Theo's crap, the number nine. Um, and obviously that, that didn't quite end up happening. But it's, it's kind of a similar thing. This, this is definitely how he's wanted to play for a long time. And rightly so, because it's much more us. Um, it's much more in tune with the football we want to play. It's much more in tune with the way we need to play. And um, I, I was quite interested in what Clive said on the last pod. Um, I've spoken a little bit about um, who's come into the spine of the team recently. And actually, uh, something I hadn't really thought of that he spoke about was who's come out of it. Um, the likes of Mertesacker, Ramsey, Giroud. And all of a sudden, you know, the team moves a little bit quicker, uh, a little bit more quickly because... You know, because we've we've got more kind of front-footed players, and again, we spoke about this at the end of last season that we've started to see this this transition towards front-footed kind of pressing. And and Wenger was very very clear. If you saw his comments afterwards, he said, you know, he said those exact words. He said, "This is the football we want to play, putting yeah. teams under pressure." He spoke about combinations, but not just combinations, quick combinations. Um, and he he said it in. That he said, it like, you know, Wenger, Wenger sometimes is a little bit coy about this kind of thing, but he said it in those exact words. He said, this is the football that we want to play. Yeah. And today everybody played it. Um, and that's, you know, that, that this is where he's wanted to go um, for a little while. And this is one of those days when it came together. And I think what's interesting recently is, you know, yeah, we've, we've been able to do this against Chelsea, a team who, in principle while not the most swashbuckling attacking side, are a team who can come to the Emirates and think, yeah, we've got a good chance of winning. We've got players that can hurt them going forward. And you kind of think, OK, but how does that work against teams that sit deep? Well, Hull sat deep. Hull sat very deep. Hull did the two banks of four thing. And uh, we didn't have many problems um, getting through them because we're so much more mobile, because there's so much more movement. You move players out of place. And, you know, that two banks of four thing works quite nicely if um, they're defending against a front three that just kind of stands next to them. And, it, and I Tim, if I, can, if I can add in on the Chelsea game, the second goal was against two banks of four. They were sitting deep yeah. at that point. And, yeah, it was, yeah. and to your point, Elliot, it was the overload on the left-hand side. That's kind of, they were knocking back and forward between Ozil and Alexis. Sorry, uh, uh, and Alex Iwobi. Mm-hmm. And... Theo did his first run from the right. He did a kind of a decoy run as it turned out into the center spot. And he, he, he stayed there and kind of worked his way actually a little bit over to the left. And it was that clear space on the right. And Wobie's brilliant bit of vision. The turn and the vision the second time he received it from Ozil to carve them open. So Well, there's another point too, right? That one of the advantages of of pressing aggressively in an or you know, organized sort of counter I guess counter pressing kind of way is you know, if if you want to break down two banks of four, do yeah. it when they're in transition, when they're not set, right? When they don't have 
your 11 players in front of their 10 players, right? So when you press and win the ball back, suddenly the defense is scrambling and out of position. But you need players who can run into those spaces and take advantage of that, which is what we did with the second goal. You know, the first goal, again, you know, Giroud works really hard, but he can't score that goal. He can't take advantage of... And that third goal, those two goals were the ones where I thought, those aren't happening with Giro, the first and the third. Yeah. Um, so, all right, well, well, Paul, let me let me ask you about a player that you have a lot of time for, and I, you know, I don't want this to all just get repetitive, but I want you to wax lyrical about Theo for a bit because, it, you know, it's so easy to fall into tropes and yeah. stereotypes and say, oh, the difference now is that he's working defensively. That's, yeah. that's not true. That's not the difference. I mean, no. yes, it helps. His, his commitment to defending and, and that sort of thing helps, but... It's everything. It's the touch. It's the vision. It's the movement. What do you think has yeah. clicked for Theo? Um, and, and what did you think of him on the day? I thought he was sensational. I thought uh, I think it's his best performance for Arsenal. Maybe not his best attacking performance, but his best overall performance. I love the way the crowd cheered everything he did in terms of his defensive work. How about the, that the touch thing, on the on the side, the, yeah, the right yeah. end line where he pulls it out of the air and just sends it yeah. down the line? Nobody was expecting that. And I think the beauty of being able to play both ways is, it reminds me when I used to play rugby, the great thing about one of the forwards being one of the forwards, um, like I used to play number eight or, or number seven, and it was kind of that perfect role where... Uh, if it's a muddy day or if it's a possession day, the forwards are always involved. If it's a good day, the forwards are involved before the backs get involved. The beauty of of playing certain positions, or in, key, in, in Theo's case, playing both ways means you're involved in every game. So, uh, and at every stage in every game. You know, if it's going well, we're attacking. He's got the ball. If it's going against us, if... They have their head. He's involved. He's doing things that give him energy, that make him feel, you know, sitting there where where Wenger's talking about how he's 90% attacking and 10% defending. You know, part of the blame goes to Arson, who I love, <laughs> because he was fine with it for years. Sanya covered Theo's ass. We played through the right wing. Uh, Wenger kind of looked at the profit and loss and said, you know, I'll live with that. If you look at... The breakaway goal, uh, again, the counter-attacking goal against Chelsea, one of the things that caught me is Theo's nowhere to be seen. I had to go back and kind of check out what he's at. He's playing left back, and I think he was fast enough to get up there, but mentally he was in the left back role. So when uh, Ozil takes off, he says, oh, you know, oh, fuck it, I, mi- I missed out this time. Because, you know, you, you can't be in two places Uh, at the same time and sometimes not even mentally so uh, I think it's a it's been great for his confidence because through 90 minutes he's involved and he's getting instead of the crowd being on his back you know say he'd taken a bad touch the crowd wouldn't have groaned uh, uh, in that Chelsea match for the Mm -hmm. first time in four years right yeah because he's he's got all that credit because they see him has more than just the guy who gets the ball four times a game. And look, he fucked it up twice. Now, he might have got an assist with uh, one of his four touches, but the crowd's still going to groan two or three times at him, and it doesn't fucking help him. And, and Wenger talked about the, the crowd supporting him and getting behind him and 
how what a different I don't remember his exact words, but the implication was you get behind this guy. You got a new guy here. I, well, I, I mean, he also implied that there's a refocused attitude and dedication. That, yeah. You know, is, I mean, he put some of it on really Theo. potted version of what happened with Theo because he keeps saying it all the time. Oh, why? You know, people said uh, and I heard this on the the R's cast and I've heard it all over the place. Theo only shows up when it's time for contract negotiation. And I took offense at that personally because he's like a, a brother to me because I've never found that to be believable with him. This guy is sitting on a nice wage and a comfortable contract, and he could have showed up for this season same way he showed up for everyone. This has nothing to do with contract. Um, he absolutely fucking knuckled down. He looked at the end of his, his international career with the Euros, and he thought he felt a busted flush there. He looked a washed-up club player last year. Um, and yep. coming into the summer... Uh, he had a come to Jesus with himself after a very low point. He came in and talked to the manager and the manager does reference him and Theo talking as you would imagine and suspect. I'm I guarantee you he came into London Colony, he sat down with the, the manager and said, what's my future here? Why are you looking at Vardy? What, you know, where, how am I going to fit into all of this? And, you know, I'm not feeling it with the center forward thing. He had his ass handed to him in the second half of the season. Where's my future? What do I need to do to be a starter? Because he's looking at, you know, the Spanish Vardy coming in. He's looking at uh, Welbeck coming back. He's got Ra the Ramsey problem. He's got, you know, the manager's going to hold on to Gnabry. Or, so he could have been three, four or five back. And he said, what do I need to do to be a starter? And yeah, I mean, he, he, he also could, he could have been sold this summer. I mean, yeah, I think, oh, I think absolutely. people assumed he was off in the summer. Yeah. Um, uh, and imagine the focus it takes to know that you might be sold and still knuckle down to changing your whole philosophy and approach. There's tremendous credit for a guy with that level of focus when you see so many other players who have drifted off in the game at this particular point with, with two massive kicks in the balls. You know, seeing your club... Uh, uh, situation go down the toilet with no good move ahead of you after last season and seeing your seeing you become a joke internationally mm -hmm. and he absolutely fucking nailed what he needed to do and I mean it's frustrating okay 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 okay, okay. Well, I'm you know, calling time on your on your Theo moment yeah. <laughs> all right why didn't he do this a few years ago I don't know. I think, you know, maybe Ferguson would have slapped him around a bit. Maybe if he'd had more competition. Uh, but we allowed it. And he didn't really click what he needed to do to be a complete player. Okay, I, I think the one caveat to all of that, which I don't disagree with, is just that he started last season very well. Um, so... You know, yeah, I, but I, to be I, fair, la last season you could see a certain intensity, but not at this no, level. No, I, I just I'm just making the point that you know, it you know what is it? One swallow doesn't make a blowjob. Oh or, yeah, no, something else. Sure. Anyway, um, sure, he, he he could switch it all off in a couple of months when yeah. he gets comfortable. Anyway, um, so I mean, he was obviously brilliant. I I want to get to there's some real stars of this. There's there's Hector Bellerin who we need to talk about. I, I want to talk a little bit of Ozil and Sanchez because I think it still comes down to in modern football, 
your special players. I mean, Barcelona still aren't Barcelona without, you know, Iniesta and Messi or Messi and Suarez or Suarez and Neymar. Okay, they're a bad example maybe. Uh, Madrid aren't the same without Bale and Ronaldo. Um, you know, City isn't the same without Aguero. And, and Ozil and Alexis really make difference for us. But before I get to that, I, I, it's so easy to get caught up in these beautiful goals that we scored. But Tim... If we're going to press and if we're going to play a high line, one of the things that we've seen in the past is that's where Per Mertesacker it looks like Bambi on ice. That's where he's most vulnerable. That's where he's least assured, where he he makes that step forward because he doesn't want to run backwards, where we've seen some some of his least flattering moments. I still think when we're on the back foot, when we're defending as a group, Mertesacker might be one of our best organizers and, and most competent tacklers on the ground. How big a difference does it make to have Mustafi in there to play this style? Well, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And you only got to look at what happened in um, the game this season and the game last season. You know, last season we played a high line. Per Mertesacker got sent off this season, played a high line. And look what happened. And you can tell it was a very concerted effort to be aggressive on Costa, um, not to let him turn. That seemed to be the key message because... Actually, he scored quite a few goals from the edge of or outside of the box this season, which you don't really associate with Costa. But he's good at turning um, because he's got good close control and he's strong. And obviously the instruction was the instant he gets the ball, you know, just do not let him turn by fair means or foul. Um, Stay on your feet so that if you do foul him, and there were a few fouls on Costa, there were quite a few, um, but they were good fouls in that, you know, it wasn't like a slide tackle or a lunge. It was just, you know, a little bit into the back of him so you don't attract the referee's attention. You don't get yourself a yellow card and then you can kind of keep doing it. Um, and we did. I, I haven't seen the numbers. I'd be interested to see how many free kicks were given away, probably on the halfway line as well. Um, and in fact, the only time that Koscielny and Mustafi looked a little bit out of sorts is when they both went for him at the same time. Yeah. Um, and and that's, you know, if you're going to mess it up, I'd rather it was because they both went for him. I mean, it worked out all right in the end, but I'd rather it's because they both went for him than they both stood there looking at each other. Um, so they were both, you know, really, really up for it. And it, it was obvious they had that plan. And, you know, that's, that's, quite, um, that's quite a risky plan as well, particularly because they played Fabregas. And if you don't get that right, um, there's few players better at, uh, you know, at punishing you and dinking that ball over the top of you. So they, they both had to get it right. It was a risky strategy, and, and they did. Um, and the numbers show you that. The game showed you that. Um, Costa's many, many hissy fits, which was delightful <laughs> to watch, <Yep. laughs> um, showed you that. He was frustrated. He was frustrated as hell. And actually, he didn't look... Apart from that one time he went up to Koscielny... He didn't actually look that frustrated with the quote-unquote treatment he was getting. He looked frustrated at the situation. I think there's probably a little bit of him in his evil brain that thought, yeah, well played, chaps. You've just got the better of me today. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when he was kind of, you know, remonstrating and stamping his feet and stuff, a lot of the time it was just towards the ether. It wasn't at anyone. Um, It wasn't at his teammates. Uh, like I say, other than that one time, not at Koscielny, he knew that they'd got the better of him. And given the way that he plays, and he likes to roughhouse, and I, I reckon he probably somewhere bubbling in the back of that awful, awful mind thought to himself, 
yeah, I, I can respect that. That's if I were a centre half, that's how I'd have played you today. Um, and I, they got it spot on. They got it absolutely spot on. The strategy was spot on, but it but it left a lot to Koscielny and Mustafi to execute it because it's so easy to get wrong, as we saw last season, because we got it wrong. Um, and having someone like Mustafi, who's obviously quite a bit more energetic, um, you know, far more aggressive and prepared to get kind of get stuck in. Mm. Um, I wouldn't like to see that in every game, um, to be honest, because, you know, it does leave some holes, but they seem to just about get it right. There were a couple of hairy moments, um, but they just about got it right in terms of one of them attacking and one of them sitting off. And that will come over time as well. But I don't think that's a strategy I like to see in every game, but I fully understand why it was the strategy for this one, given the guy they were playing against. Yeah, I mean, look, if we can play this way, I love it, because instead of saying, oh, we have this player, Francis Coughlin, and he is the defensive midfielder, and he covers all of the ground in the universe between our attacking players and our defending players, that, that just doesn't work. We've seen it not work. There is no player, not Busquets, not... Francis Coughlin, certainly not Shaka, who's going to cover that amount of space. When you take these mobile, talented, aggressive players and get them in the face of other teams up the pitch, not only can you win the ball back there and pre- prevent yourself from having to do you know, a lot of chasing back and a lot of de- defending over 60 yards you know, or 60 meters or whatever, but you then have these talented players in possession of the ball further up the pitch against an unsettled defense where they can absolutely destroy them. And, and one of the players who's really instrumental in this is Alex Awobi. And you look at some of the players that we've tried on the wing, other than Theo and Alexis, and you have Joel Campbell, and you have Oxley chamberlain you know, and, and I think, you know, with do, all due respect to those players, what makes Awobi such a, a ray of, of light there is, and, and we've seen a little of it from Campbell, where he was able to, to make that, that killer pass, but... Awobi has incredibly quick feet and a great eye for a final ball. And having that extra that extra set of eyes to unlock a defense back there, I think, is making a big, big difference. We create those overloads like like that second goal where Theo winds up in the middle of the pitch. Awobi winds up in the middle of the pitch, essentially exchanging passes with Ozil. And now you really create some exciting combination play. You can't see Oxlade Chamberlain doing that. And you know, you, you could see Alexis Sanchez doing that in theory, but that's not really how you want him attacking the defense. So, you know, he's he's really becoming a star before our eyes. And, and you know, Tim, I know he's a player that you feel like was kind of a missing piece of the puzzle. Um, mm. And he's really filling it. I mean, a lot of people wanted Riyad Mahrez. A lot of people wanted us to go get a wide player. I certainly did want us to go get a wide player. But if he can continue to play like this and play a lot of games for us this season, you know, it's asking a lot of a 20-year-old, but it can make, a huge difference and you know despite the fact that you know we're not even using the one striker we bought we're scoring goals we're scoring a lot of goals so far so long may it continue um paul the 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 thing i i said earlier is what i really believe about football which is that no matter how good the tactics are no matter how great the manager is no matter how great the effort of the players it's the really special players that make football exciting to watch and make teams win i mean as much as I loved, you know, winning trophies under Arsene Wenger in, you know, his first 10 years as manager, it was some of the players. It was, you know, it was watching Bergkamp. Yeah. It was watching Thierry Henry and Pires, um, Patrick Vieira. You know, it, it was 
it was the kind of football they played that made it special. And, you know, I, I think yeah. with Alexis Sanchez and Mesut Ozil, we, we have that. They were at the absolute best of what they can be on Saturday. When they hit that level, is that what it takes for us to really go from a, a good team to a true contender? Yeah, I don't think there's any putting the genie back in the bottle now. I mean, can you imagine that we go to playing a different way? The line out the door at Wenger's office the the, the following day after the match. Who would want to watch it? <laughs> Who would want to yeah. watch anything else after this? Ozil and Sanchez will be at the top of the line saying, what the fuck are you doing? We had it. You know, so, but... Well, and who, isn't, it, but, isn't it also kind of true... Paul, that when you have players who are as good and as smart as Alexis and Ozil, sure, maybe it didn't look like the Alexis thing was working right off the bat, but give them a couple games to figure it out, and they're too yeah. good and too smart not to figure it out. Yep. And, but imagine the the pressure that the manager's under when he tries this kind of thing, or when he sticks with the Coquelin Cazorla thing, because he thinks that gives him the opportunity to keep playing. You know, whatever his thinking is, he's got the world against him, and he's got the balls to stick with this and it's paid off and you can see from his comments uh, Tim referred to it that he loved this football that this is his football I just can't see us going back from here Uh, I have a lot of time for Giroud I think he can play a big role this season I even have a lot of time for a front three with him in the middle of it but it doesn't it's it's an order of magnitude less exciting it's never going to be as entertaining to watch and that's always been my argument we talked about fit your eye on a previous podcast that that's football this football is mouth-watering you know this fits everybody's eye Uh, and when you consider that you had basically Henri and Bergkamp in our team but they weren't doing the Henri Bergkamp thing here you know we had Ozil and Alexis and what a crying shame if you know in two years time they move on to their next situation and we had the most brilliant player in Ozil doing great, you know, assists and stuff. But we never really got the full Ozil because it's the partnerships. Well, you know, think we about ha- this. Just picture the yeah. third goal, Paul. Ozil, yeah, turns, oh, yeah. Ozil yeah, yeah. turns Conte into the ground. He's now breaking yeah. free up the pitch, striding into space, and there's Giroud up in front of him, unable to make the kind of run to turn that into into an opportunity. For a player like Ozil, that's deflating. But now he looks up, and there's Alexis timing his yeah. run perfectly, staying onside, getting on the ball, knowing how Splitting to get it back the to the center backs, turning them inside mm-hmm. out. And then the beauty of it was he gets in a position where he was first thinking he was going to shoot, but maybe it's just pushed a little bit out to the right. And in an instant, he knows what he's going to do with it. He's going to partner back with Ozil. It's the, you know, it's Bergkamp, Henri. They just have this. And you can see they fucking love playing with each other. Uh, the the level of excitement. And you add in Kazorla. And then you add in Uwobi. I mean, they must be having, it must be like a fucking trip to Six Flags Entertainment Park. Amusement Park. I mean, it's just... When when players are enjoying their football that much, it brings the whole team up a level. So And then you got Theo, who's maybe not fun in that sense to play with, but it gives them all these other options from the right wing. And then you got the other partnership of Theo and Bellerin, which when you add that together, is just adds a whole other dimension of capability, excitement. You know, it, it just yep. it brings the whole thing to life. I, I think it's... I think 
the synergy, the uh, synergy is such a dull word, the, the excitement between Ozil and Alexis is just off the charts starting a couple of games back. This game, I think, is a signature game for individual players, for partnerships, but most of all for our the newest Bergkamp Henri. And we haven't really enjoyed it because Alexis has been nailed down on the left wing yeah. with two guys marking him. And so Ozo's been playing great doing assists, but it's not that, ex- you know, yeah, it's exciting, but it's not, you know, this is otherworldly. This is, this takes you to a whole level. It's fun defenses to watch. It's got to be, be sh- fun to play, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, defenses will shit themselves. You talked about Giroud in this situation. And I don't want to, I don't, I think we all really value Giroud, right? Well, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, kidding, him, kidding, kidding. but him coming up against those two centre backs. I mean, he's actually as fast as Alexis, believe it or not, in Top Gear. But he can't change gears. I mean, Alexis slays them. They're all running at the same speed, and then he times his run. I was convinced he'd be offside. He just fucking zooms through them when he goes up that last that last change of speed, and between them, not around them. They don't know what the fuck's going on. They swing over to his side, then they're scrambling back mm-hmm. to Ozil. And it's all in the bit, blink of an eye when you look at it. I mean, it's just absolutely fucking astounding. Yeah. And, and what you go ahead, what Tim. you said there about um, Alexis kind of going through the gears, um, really good point. Not only with the acceleration, but then to hit that ball to Ozil, he's got to slow down again. He's got to yeah. steady himself. And that's um, that, that takes exceptional balance to go, you know, to be plodding along, and then go full speed for 10 yards and then stop and then, you know, drop it onto Ozil's left foot. That's, that's not as easy as it looks. That is a tough physical feat as well as a technical one. Yeah. So, so, well, let me, let me ask you this, Tim, the, the performance obviously is brilliant. The, the attacking football was sensational. Um, There were a couple hairy moments defensively where they did get in behind him. One in particular gave Hector Bellerin a chance to show off that, phenomenal pace of his um, when he just ran down Pedro like he was standing still and made the saving tackle. He also played the perfect ball across to Theo for the second goal. This is a player who has really come into his own. And, you know, Mm. we we talk about young players coming up. I mean, he's not really an Arsenal youth player. I mean, he's a Barcelona youth player. But coming up through the ranks and making a mark. And now with Bellerin and Iwobi, we have two young players that are really turning into a star what did you think of, of Bellerin's performance? Uh, an, another kind of in a in what is now a series of coming age coming of age performances for Hector Bellerin. Um, you know he was up against he was up against Eden Hazard. Um, that's 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 tough. That's one of the toughest opponents that you're going to get. Um, Premier League or Champions League. You know Hazard. He's um, he's not a fighter exactly, but. He's a very, very good player who can turn you in the absolute blink of an eye. Uh, and actually, for the first, uh, probably till it got to 3-0, I, I thought Hazard still looked, he looked like he was up for it, you know, um, not so much in the second half, but in the first half, he certainly was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the biggest compliment you can give Bellerin is just before Hazard was with, withdrawn, um, they swapped uh, Hazard and Willian um, because Hazard was just getting no change out of Hector Bellerin at all. Um, and, you know, he's been doing this kind of thing in recent weeks where, you know, he's playing with Theo, which perhaps 
a year to 18 months ago, Wenger didn't really want to do because, you know, usually Theo gives his right back a little bit more to do. That's that's not happening this season. But nevertheless, off the bat, uh, when it first happened, the first game of the season, it's, it's a bit of a risk because Bellerin's still quite green. Um, but he's still doing that kind of, that, that almost that thing that Sanya did. And uh, he didn't do it as much in this game, but Harley was coming into midfield quite a lot. Um, so that he could receive the ball, so that um, you know uh, Walcott didn't have to, mm-hmm. and he's he's just flying at the moment. He's absolutely flying, and he's another one that the manager singled out. Um, and he said, you know, this boy is going from strength to strength. And when you come into a team at 19, and you know you're playing every single week, uh, and it's 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 an example, I think, to young players everywhere. Um, you know, I write a lot about young Brazilian footballers who are brilliant and then they go to Europe at 19 and they don't play and and they don't develop because they don't play. And here's Hector Bellerin, who was at Barcelona. Barcelona would have him in their team now, no doubt, but they wouldn't don't, have been Don't even him. say that out loud. Just <laughs> just take it back. I'll delete that part from the podcast. Pretend you didn't say it. But but they wouldn't have been playing him two years ago. And, and that's the difference. You know, young players need to play to develop. And he's been playing week in, week out. Um, he's, you know, he, he didn't look out of place from the start, but now he's, he's really, really kind of um, coming up to speed and really kind of not just looking like he belongs, but looking like one of the best players on the pitch um, whenever he plays. And, you know, this is, this is just a testament to, to you know, leaving a good club to go somewhere to play, um, and as much as he's not quite our um, our academy product because we took him at 16, but he you know he was he was a midfielder at Barcelona. He was a right winger, and technically that's the best education in football, being mm. a young midfielder at Barcelona. But we took the decision to make him a right back. He'd never played there before. He came to us, and it was our decision to develop him there. And um, so, you know, we, we deserve a fair bit of the credit for his development as well. And it's it's um, it's wonderful to see, because like you say, it, between him and Awobi, two of the best young players in the Premier League at the moment, without doubt. Yeah, and, and it's it's fun because I think also, you know, as much as it's great to, you know, buy a guy like Ozil or Alexis and just be amazed that they're at our club and be astounded watching them, there is something fun about watching a kid break into the team and become a part of it, especially a guy like Awobi who's, you know what he's been there since he's eight years old or whatever it is or i mean how yeah, yeah i mean so it it just means a lot more and it, and it's fun to see i even thought you know speaking of arsenal youth products i thought kieran gibbs had a good little cameo um mm. maybe there's an opportunity yeah. for him to play a little on the wing because i thought actually from an attacking standpoint he added a lot um and then his saving tackle uh, admittedly we were still three goals up but yeah he did have one of a classic kieran gibbs pinch pinch into the six-yard box and save, yeah, save a, a goal. You know, it's really incredible when you look at the pace in the side right now because our football had become so plodding. But, you know, Nacho maybe isn't going to burn anybody up. But Koscielny is, is fast. I, I think Mustafi can certainly run a hell of a lot better than Mertesacker. Bellerin is, you know, a, a Jaguar. Um, Theo could rival Bellerin for pace. Alexis is blindingly fast. I think Ozil's a lot faster than people give him credit for. Yep. Um, you know, I don't know that Wobie's the fastest guy in the world, but he, you know, he's mobile. Suddenly now, there, there's 
you know, there's no you can't take it easy when you when you face Arsenal. You can't just keep them in front of you and 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 the thing I really enjoyed about this is the variety. You know, we scored goals on the counterattack. We scored goals from, you know, beautiful open play, Wenger ball, you know, short passes and can cut them open. It it really looked like the kind of football that that had you know, I hate to say it, kind of gone by the wayside for a little bit. And, you know, long may it continue. And the counter, just, just to chip in, the counter-attacking goal, uh, you often hear people say we're a great counter-attacking team. I don't think we are. But you put uh, Alexis at the top of that counter-attack and you'll score a lot of goals. And he had a one-on-one with Courtois. He beat him so, so easily on the first goal. Mm-hmm. And then, and then on the third counter-attacking goal. But the first goal goal was kind of like a counter-attacking goal, uh, in that he ended up one-on-one with the keeper. You know, Batshuayi uh, had his one-on-one with the Czech. That's you know, you say, oh, you can't miss from there. Yeah, pretty much can. You can probably miss sixty percent of the time. Yeah, from I think there. the xG for a chance like that is like point four of a goal or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so just to your point. You're going to score a whole lot of exciting goals that were with with Alexis up front in the counter-attacking mode that we haven't actually been brilliant at putting away. Yeah, I mean, look, the other thing is, you know, you can be critical of, you know, Batistre, for example, getting away and having his chance, or Pedro getting getting in behind. I mean, one of the advantages of having a Hector Bellerin, for example, is recovery pace. But we see it with teams like Barcelona. Um, Klopp's Dortmund and now Klopp's Liverpool, if you're going to press and if you're going to possess the ball high up the pitch and push both your central midfielders high up the pitch, you know, you're not going to be sitting back and defending a lot, but the trade-off is you can get hit on the counter. And, you know, I will I will take that trade-off all day long, um, especially because it means we don't have, you know, players like Francis Cochran being asked to cover 60 yards of space. The, the, the thing that was driving me nuts you guys, and we talked about this, I can't remember which game it was after. Maybe it was after Southampton or or you know, one of the early games, maybe Leicester, was just how disconnected the three parts of the team were. There was the back four, there was the midfield, and there was the attacking trio, and there was you know, 20, 30 yards between them, and there was no one connecting it. And now we've solved that problem by just saying, well, screw it. We're going to push everybody into their half and keep them all within 10 yards of each other. I don't know that there were many times that Cazorla or Shaka or Coughlin were more than 10, 15 yards away at most from Uwobi or Alexis or Ozil or Walcott. And so there were so many more opportunities to exchange passes, um, both in their half and as we talked about early in the podcast, in the final third. As we start to wrap up, um, you know, what was a brilliant game, and, and there were so many chances we could have had. There was uh, Alexis had an easy ball. He could have slid through to Theo and just never got the pass away. Um, Theo would have been right in on goal. Um, you know, there were a lot of counterattacks that were kind of near misses so to speak, where, where we didn't quite get that final opportunity. Um, but it, it was just, it was a thoroughly enjoyable game altogether. I think, obviously, the disappointment is the injury to Coughlin. Um, but, you know, the, the big difference now is Coughlin goes down and we don't bring in Matthew Flamini. We bring in Granite Shaka. Um, Tim, what do you expect to change, if anything, with Shaka coming in for Coughlin? Did, did you see any hints of that in this game? Um, I think... My kind of what, like I said, at, at 2-0, uh, Jacker and Kazora is, is a wonderful partnership because, you know, they're both just capable of sitting there and not wasting the ball, um, frankly, which which uh, which worked beautifully. Um, I think I'd have my doubts as to that particular partnership just because 
I don't think you can do the pressing game as much with those two there because, you know, Kazola doesn't really get involved in the press per se. And uh, and Jack is not really that type of player either. They're both kind of possession players. So I, I'm not sure you do that style quite as effectively with those two. I, I do worry it's not quite dynamic enough, maybe. Um, I think in a game where you're going to have a lot of the ball, um, it's it will probably be fine. But um, I, I do, I, I do, and I, and I like I said earlier, I, I don't want to be down on Jacker at all because he's he's still coming up, uh, coming up to pace. But I think he hopefully will learn in time that he doesn't have to try and take the ball every time. It's it's you know. <laughs> That, that there's an, an opposition player with the ball at his feet. He doesn't always have to go and take the challenge that he can shepherd them or just stand off and make sure they haven't got a pass. Because at the moment, it's happened a few times, I think, where he gets dribbled past and either he has to let them go or he ends up fouling. Um, but hopefully he'll he'll get over that in time because in possession, he, he adds so much with his passing range. But I do kind of have my doubts as to whether Jacker and Kazola works together in the long term um, and I wonder if if Elneny really should come into the equation instead because if you haven't got Ramsey and you haven't got Coquelin you know the two big things they bring is their energy um, and without them you know Jacker and Cazorla don't really quite have that um, so I, I think it will be interesting um, and, and you know listen I've only seen Granite Jacker play you know probably in total less than three hours of football now, probably four hours or three or four hours worth. Right. So I really don't know enough about him to be saying this, that and the other. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Let, let me present that. Oh, said, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. That said, you know, I said a couple of weeks ago that we seem to be doing one bit of the team at a time. So we changed the front three and that's clicked now. And we're in that wonderful little honeymoon period where it's clicked, but the opposition hasn't really worked it out yet. And now Koscielny and Mustafi have had a few games together. And I said a few weeks ago, it, it looked like he'd leave the midfield until, until those two bits were, you know, a little bit more stable. So really, um, with like a confidence-boosting win like this, where the centre-half pairing looked a bit better, where the front three looks incredible, you know, this, this probably is as good a time as any, even if it's possibly a week or two early. I think probably after the October international break, Wenger would have got cracking on the whole midfield thing. Um, but this expedites that slightly. So it's it's no disaster. Um, but it will be interesting to see what he does um, in, mm. the next, in the next few games. It's going to be really interesting when Ramsey's back too, because, I mean, Cazorla's yeah. playing every minute of every game. He's going to need a rest certainly but he's indispensable in the starting lineup i would say right now um mm. just a, a magnificent player to watch and while i don't think he was brilliant on saturday compared to some of the other players around him he's just so so reliable and so consistent mm. um you know my, my my counterpoint really quickly tim to your point about shaka is he's never going to be the tackler that Coughlin is Coughlin's one of the best tacklers in the league um he you know he's He's not necessarily going to have that same instinct for defensive positioning in terms of, you know, where to stand to cut off those those opportunities. But if you're going to be, I mean, look, Francis Coughlin was playing 20 yards, 25 yards, 30 yards from the opposition goal, right? He was playing pushed up the pitch. If you're going to have someone playing that high up, 
I understand that part of Coughlin's point there was to win the ball back when we lose it, but in possession, you know, Coughlin's a guy who's going to complete 83, 84, 85% of his passes. Shaq on the day yeah. was 94%, you know, 94, 95%. I think yeah. if I'm going to have my box, you know, my, one of my defensive midfielders, quote unquote, playing in the attacking third, I want him completing 94% of his passes because if he does give yeah. the ball away, you know, that's where the vulnerabilities started. So, you know, what we lose in tackling, maybe we make up with just in ball security, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, Paul, I, you know, we're starting to wind down here. We're hit, getting around the hour mark. But, um, you know, I, I think it would be, it would be crazy. Remiss. You know, cra- oh. Crazy to talk about corners being turned because we've been burned by those conclusions so many times in the past. Yep. But but let's just take a quick peek because we you know from here and look it's hard to talk about the league without bringing up what Manchester City are doing and they certainly look like odds on favorites right now. But our next few matches in all competitions: home to Basel at Burnley, home to Swansea, home to Ludogorets, home to Middlesbrough, home to Reading, at Sunderland, at Ludogorets. There's not a game in there where we won't be heavy favorites and. Five of the next six are at home. There's an international break chucked in there somewhere uh, when maybe we, we get an Aaron Ramsey back. Is this next period, let's say, because then when we go November 6th and November 19th are Tottenham home, United away, is is there sort of a season-defining moment in these in this run of easy fixtures where we can pile up points and really establish ourselves around the top of the table? So I would have been really uncomfortable with that question uh, even with this result, um, if we hadn't just kind of cracked the code, um, for me, it's more on the strength of the performance. Well, let the me just stop that... you for one, just one second. You, you say we yeah. cracked the code. The one interesting thing, ironically, is we're now going to face all teams over the next seven matches or so, six, seven, eight matches, who will sit, who won't want the ball, who won't attack. So yeah. it, it may be a totally different code to crack, so to speak. I think that I think that's fair, but we ha- it's not... With this blueprint, you have options. There may be games where we bring in Giroud after 60 minutes. That's To me, that's part of the code, right? Um, but what we have is a defense that is one of the best defenses in the league, if you look at it. Subtract out, especially subtract out the Liverpool performance, which wasn't this defense. And then look how we've done overall. Um, and you add in now a pretty solid midfield partnership that's going to evolve a little bit, but hopefully this opposition won't that we're facing isn't going to test it to the full. So I think they can, they can play like a top level midfield against these upcoming teams because mm-hmm. they won't fully stretch it. And by the time we're done with this five or six, seven teams, the two will have really bedded in and hopefully be able to handle top level competition. But I think they'll look like a top level midfield over the next few games. And then our front front three options now all make sense. You know, Alexis is freed up. So I would have been very uncomfortable getting into any season predicting, you know, wh- where are we going to be? Is this a defining phase of the season? But now that we have this 11 sorted, I think there's no reason we should be too... too uh, anything other than optimistic of our ability to kind of deliver over the next eight games. This this is a strong setup we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. So we go from here. I mean, it, it, I think technically we'll be selling our, celebrating Arson's 20th 
anniversary this weekend, and and it's uh, Burnley. Tim, any worry? I mean, you'd be you'd not be an Arsenal fan. You said there was no worry, but what's your level of worry, scale of one to ten, for a, a letdown? Actually, I, sorry, pardon me. We have we have Basel first. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, I I'm not going to touch on that. We can talk about it after. But really, what we're talking right now is league momentum. So, yeah, what do you think? What do you think the risk is that that we have a letdown in the league following a big win like this? Um, I, I think you know Burnley is a completely different game that will throw up a completely different challenge. We saw how Burnley played against Liverpool at home, for example, and to me, there's no reason to suggest they'll do anything different. They'll let us have around seventy percent of the ball at least, and you know the, I think it will be tougher than Hull. Um, for example, who, like I said after the last podcast, they've been riding their luck uh, in the last few weeks, and that's really come home to roost in the last couple of games. Whereas, you know, I think Burnley will be a bit tighter, a bit more competitive. They'll they'll look to upset us basically. So it's it's a completely different challenge, and it, and it will be a difficult one. Um, make no mistake, it will probably be the sort of challenge we've not really had yet this season um, in the league, come to think of it. We haven't really played like a really physical kind of in-your-face style um, when you think about it. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be complacent at all. I'd still be confident of getting a result, but um, I don't think it'll be easy. It'll be no walk in the park, um, and it'll be a completely different challenge to that which we face this season. Yep, I agree. I mean, uh, so we'll see. The, the good news is with the Basel game first, you know, that's <laughs> we get a chance to get any let downy instincts out of our system there. Um, I expect the manager to ring the changes actually for that game. So we'll see. Are yeah. you? Uh, uh, you'll be there, I guess. That's a home game, right? Of course, yeah. I'll, I'll be at them all. <laughs> of course you will. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Paul, thanks for joining us. You can find Paul on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Tim, thanks for joining us. You can find Tim uh, on Twitter at Stilberto. Tim. Uh, and Paul will hopefully be back after midweek. We'll see about that. So thanks, guys. Um, my name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful occasion to not just beat but destroy Chelsea. Long time coming. And hopefully, I mean, there have been a lot of false dawns, but hopefully we finally have something to celebrate, not just in terms of results um, going forward, but the style of football, a style of football we can all uh, really enjoy watching um, and and. Hopefully we'll produce the results as well. So uh, we'll talk to you after the Basel game. Until then, cheers, and see you midweek. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-Month Emergency Food Kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. 
My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 